The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, we are going to welcome back tonight one of my very favorite guests. This is going to be the third time that he's been on our show. The first time was right after he wrote the book, The Digital Person, Technology and Privacy in the Information Age, a wonderful book. And then the second time he was on was right after he wrote his book, and that's called The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. That was a fabulous book. And then I just found out about the brand new book, and I read it. I got it just a few days ago and immediately sat down and read it. And it's called Understanding Privacy by Daniel J. Solov. And Daniel has been on before. Let me tell you, if you haven't heard him before, he's fabulous. I'm going to tell my audience a little bit about him. Daniel Solov is a professor of law at the George Washington University of Law. He received his A.B. in English, and you can really tell when you read his books, in English literature from Washington University, where he was an early selection for Phi Beta Kappa. And then he got his J.D. from Yale Law School. And then at Yale, Professor Solov won the university-wide Scholarly Writing Field Prize and served as symposium editor of the Yale Law Journal, He also clerked for several judges, and he actually started his teaching career in law at Seton Hall's Law School in 2000. He then joined the George Washington University Law School faculty in 2004. He writes in the area of information privacy law, cyberspace law, law and literature, jurisprudence, legal pragmatism, and constitutional theory. He teaches information privacy law, criminal procedure, criminal law, and law in the literature. He's actually an internationally known expert on privacy laws as well. I know that he has been an expert witness in many cases, and he also has been interviewed and quoted by the media in several hundred articles and broadcasts, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Chicago Tribune, the Associated Press, ABC CBS, NBC, CNN, NPR, and much more. And of course, KUCI, where we are. So we're really thrilled. So as I said, he's the author of several books, Understanding Privacy, which I love, which just came out by Harvard Press in 2008, The Future of Reputation, which we talked about just last year, and The Digital Person. But he's also written more than 25 articles, which have appeared in law reviews, including Stanford Law Review and others. And he has done consulted in very high privacy profile cases before the Supreme Court. And he blogs, which you might enjoy, which I do, looking at his blog, which is at concurringopinions.com. And he covers a whole range of issues, including law, cultural, current events. And it was selected by the American Bar Association Journal as among the top 100 Best Law Blogs. So you can also find out more about him and his new book at understanding-privacy.com. And Dan, thank you so much for joining us all the way from the East Coast. Thanks so much for having me on again. 
Well, you're always a terrific guest. So, you know, you just have to keep writing these books and we'll keep getting you back on to tell about them. So tell me, Dan, what prompted you to write your new book, Understanding Privacy? Well, this is sort of a project that has been ongoing since I started getting interested in this field. And that was back in the late 90s when I first started writing about privacy. I thought um, in order to really um, talk about privacy and make policy judgments about privacy, I needed to understand what privacy was all about. And so I started reading a number of the uh, works that talked about, well, what exactly is privacy? Why is it valuable? How do we balance it against other interests? And I found that literature fascinating, but I also found it a bit wanting in that I, I never really was satisfied with any of the definitions of privacy, any of the conceptions of privacy that were all, uh, offered. And so I, I kept reading and, and, and filing this away and thinking about this. And then over the last decade or so, I've, I've developed my own uh, approach to how to understand privacy. And that's sort of what this book uh, is sort of the product of, of, of my thinking about, you know, what exactly are we talking about and how should we understand it and how should we value it? Because it's so important to understand these things in order to actually make any headway in uh, protecting privacy. Well, I'm so glad you wrote this book because I think about this show that we started four years ago, believe it or not, and you were one of our early guests. And when we started the show, first we were talking only about information privacy, the right to control information about you. And then I started seeing other issues of privacy, whether it's defamation or just having the right to be left alone, or many other things. So we have really done an eclectic perspective on privacy. So people will say to me, well, what is your show about? And I said, well, it's about every kind of privacy that you can think of. And they look at me like I'm nuts. So now I'm just going to direct them to your book. And then I'm also going to direct them to this interview, because now I'm going to ask you, all right, so what exactly is privacy? Well, I think it's many different things. And that's one of the uh, the things that I one of the main arguments I make in my book is that a lot of the earlier attempts to understand privacy tried to find the essence of privacy. What is it that's common to all instances of privacy? And so then you had this this uh, people coming up with various definitions of privacy, like privacy's control over information, privacy's limited access to to the self, privacy is the right to be let alone. Privacy is a form of intimacy. And all these different understandings of privacy are trying to like capture what it is that every single uh, instance of privacy has. The problem with that uh, that I noticed um, is that these definitions are often too broad and vague or they're either too narrow and they exclude things. Uh, so privacy is intimacy. The understanding that privacy is intimate information, um, well, Financial information might not necessarily be intimate information, but we nevertheless view that as private. And uh, the concepts like the right to be let alone, well, that's too broad. Uh, the right to be let alone, now, there's a lot, you know, if I punch you on the subway, is that really an invasion of your privacy? I've certainly violated your right to be let alone if I bump you or hit you or do whatever, but, but that doesn't mean that I've, I've committed a privacy violation. The difficulty there is when you're looking for something that is sort of a one-and-done definition that captures the common denominator of all things privacy, and you have such a sprawling concept like privacy, you're in this dilemma. Either you have a definition that's going to be you know, way too broad and vague, or you're going to have to restrict certain things and be too narrow. And so that's why I uh, thought that really what privacy is, it's many things. So I develop a pluralistic concept of privacy. Now that doesn't mean that 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 it's just a bunch of it's a grab bag of all these random things. That privacy is this group of related things. So the things that are privacy, there's many different kinds of, uh, and, and they're related. Uh, like the members of a family might be related. So an example might be you might have your mother's eyes and, you know, your, your father's hair color. And your, you, you might have a feature that you share in common with a sibling, like your brother's nose or, or you know, 
so on and so forth. Um, you might not all have one feature in common, but you definitely resemble each other. And that's the, the way privacy works. And so I developed actually a, a taxonomy of privacy in the book that, that talks about these different types of privacy uh, that we're uh, addressing. And I actually have uh, 16 different kinds of privacy that are each distinct yet related. And I think that we need to understand each one uh, to some extent uh, as distinct because otherwise uh, uh, we're not going to be concrete enough in our understanding. Each one has a different value. Each one presents a different problem or set of issues we need to think about. And so, you know, it's important that we think about them uh, distinctly and uniquely, or else I think we're going to see a lot of confusion. And I think that's one of the products of, of why the law often fails to protect privacy, why there's so many difficulties in dealing with privacy, it, it, is that uh, these, these things are not seen as distinct when I think they should be. And I think if we do that, we can make a lot more headway in how we address privacy issues. I think it's great that you have this taxonomy, which we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, because especially for the courts, with all the new technology, some of these things fit in one category or another, and I think the courts are perplexed as to really what to do. Let's go back and talk about when uh, Justice Brandeis first made his definition, and it was a technology uh, based issue, wasn't it? It started out with the whole technology of the camera. Why don't you talk about that? Exactly. Well, he, um, at the time, this is 1890, uh, there were the new cameras from Kodak. Um, this is the early days of the camera. And before that, cameras had been very large and they were clunky. And in order to get your picture taken, you had to pose before the camera. But uh, Kodak came out with uh, what was known as a snap camera, which is a, a smaller portable camera uh, that people could you know, carry around and actually was, was fairly affordable. And so uh, Brandeis and also Samuel Warren, his co-author on this piece, um, they uh, started to think about, well, this could really create certain problems because all of a sudden now people can start taking candid photographs. And isn't that a, a danger um, to privacy? And they also realized that the press was very sensationalistic at the time. It's sensationalistic today, but it actually was sensationalistic back in the, uh, in the, in the late 19th century. And so they were very concerned with cameras getting into the hands of a sensationalistic press uh, when they really feared that that would uh, you know, create some threats to privacy. Um, they were certainly right. I mean, if, if they saw what was going on today, I think they would. <laughs> They'd die. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They, 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 with everyone running around with a cell phone camera, they would think, "Wow." Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I, I, so basically, that's what prompted them to say, "Well, we need to do something." Um, technology is changing; it's creating these privacy problems, and if we don't do anything, we're really going to see these threats to privacy mount and develop. So we need to have an intervention with the law to try to make sure that there's a balance, that, that people get protected. Isn't that exactly where we are today? Because now the technology is far beyond, like what you said, that they, they could not even fathom all this. And so we're again at that same place, and that's why we need your taxonomy. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between privacy and confidentiality and nondisclosure, because I think people get confused as to what the difference is between those three. Uh, certainly. Well, they're, they're very different uh, concepts. Um, you know, privacy is itself, I, I see, as a kind of umbrella term that covers a lot of different things. Um, confidentiality is the idea that um, if, if I tell you something with an understanding that it's going to be confidential, that you don't disclose it. So an example might be you go to your doctor and you tell your doctor about health information. Um, there's an understanding between you and your doctor that your doctor is going to keep that information confidential. And that's what confidentiality is about. It's kind of a, a, it's about a promise of confidentiality or an assumption or a duty of confidentiality. Now, when you've got uh, disclosure is different because disclosure could be done by a stranger. It doesn't require a relationship. 
it's not about confidentiality so much as about somebody somewhere has found out information about you and is disclosing it. And so uh, the difference is that with disclosure, it could harm you because it, it, the information disclosure could harm your reputation, could reveal your secrets, could reveal embarrassing facts about your life that you don't want to be out there. But it could be done by a journalist. It could be done by a stranger who happens to come across information about you. A, a breach of confidentiality is more about a breach of trust. It, it, there's a relationship between you and somebody else, and they've violated that trust of yours by then releasing that secret. And the law protects the two very differently. Um, when it comes to disclosure, uh, the law of privacy will protect against the disclosure of private information, but it will limit that disclosure to when the information is not newsworthy. So if the information is newsworthy, the law doesn't give you protection and says, that's important for free speech, and therefore, you know, it's allowed to be disclosed. When it comes to confidentiality, the law takes a different tact, and, and, and it says even if the information's newsworthy, it's still not appropriate for someone to break that bond, that, 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 that promise of confidentiality. And, and the idea here is, you know, you know, your doctor might, you know, the information your doctor might have might be newsworthy, but we still expect the doctor to maintain a duty of confidentiality. That's sort of why, you know, otherwise the doctors of any celebrity or any public figure or any public official would then, you know, be able to have, uh, you know, the ability to disclose all their, I should say, breach confidentiality of all the medical information they have. And, 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 and actually, that's the kind of thing that happened at UCLA recently when all of the medical records of, of many of the movie stars were released. Now, that wasn't the doctor. Obviously, there was confidentiality between the doctor and the patients. However, the disclosure was the violation of privacy. Interesting, huh? Yes, and, and that would be... You know, it's not, and, and doctors also, I think, that businesses could be under a, a duty of confidentiality. The government can be under a duty of confidentiality. Um, nurses and people who work in hospitals, insurance companies, can all be under a duty of confidentiality. And I think that you know, we, we, we recognize that the interest that we want to protect there is a different interest than with disclosure. It's, it's protecting the... Uh, relationship and the trust in that relationship, and that's what we want to preserve. Um, when it comes to just a disclosure, there might not necessarily be a relationship or be trust. We want to protect a person's private life from being upended uh, by uh, a disclosure that's really not warranted. You know, as attorneys, you and I um, worry about both confidentiality and privacy, and I have gotten, for example, in emails, I've gotten very sensitive information that's sent to me, and it says confidential, right? You know, on on the uh, head, the subject line, and then inside it says confidential, but it's not encrypted. <laughs> so we've got this privacy that's not protected, but the confidentiality is. It's it's strange that people don't always understand the difference that those of us who have the trust of our clients or our patients or you know, our customers, if, if we aren't protecting both the privacy and the confidentiality, we're really remiss. Yeah, I actually, um, th there's, there's one other thing in the taxonomy I have, which is a, a privacy problem I call insecurity, which is the idea that um, one of the ways in which privacy can be violated is if a, a company or somebody doesn't keep your data secure. And that can very well be a, a privacy violation, even if there's no, you know, specific identity theft that relates, uh, that, that sort of follows from a data leak, I still think that there's a harm created. And I see this as, as a harm because if your data is not kept secure or if it's leaked, you are more vulnerable to potential harm than you were before. Exactly. And I think that the 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 analogy I would make is, well, suppose I secretly in the middle of the night, you know, took off all the locks off your, the doors of your house, and you didn't have an alarm, anyone could walk in. No one walks in, but now you have to live with the fact that your house no longer has locks on the door. Right, and um, you can't put the locks back on. And I think that's a, yeah, exactly, yeah. and I think, I think that's a harm. I think you are worse off 
without the locks on your door than you were before. And I think that that is a harm created by insecurity. And, and I think that the law needs to address that harm. That's that's a great analogy. And so if, if your information was breached in a security breach, you can't put the locks on, but you're supposed to hire police and, and other guards to protect you. <laughs> that's, that's basically what you have to do is if you're going to... Uh, engage some of these services in credit monitoring and employment background check monitoring and criminal background check monitoring. You have to pay for all these things, which are a harm, right? Exactly. We're speaking with wonderful, wonderful author, Daniel Solov, who's also a professor of law at George Washington University Law School. He's written several books that we've talked about before, but right now we're talking about his brand new book, understanding privacy and it really is great i think your taxonomy is probably going to be used by the courts i hope as you hoped in your in your book so let's talk a little bit about this taxonomy so people understand what it is and it gives us a whole uh, framework to understand privacy so let's start out with the first one which is uh, information collection kind of go through those for us i'm sure well basically the taxonomy consists of four really broad um uh, main categories. And then within those, there are sub-issues. So the big ones are information collection, which is basically the idea that these are harms that are created when... Uh, one thing to note about my taxonomy before I get into the details is that I focus things around privacy problems or things that, that tend to create harms. Uh, and I did that because I think that um, we can more readily agree as, as to kind of what harms are and, and, and when there's a problem. Uh, and I think that that's the best way to kind of see where we want to um, address an issue or, or, or respond to an issue. And so I frame the taxonomy around ways in which your privacy could be invaded or ways in which you could be harmed in your privacy. And so the one broad way is information collection, that the way that information is gathered about you can, can, can harm you. And, and, and one example would be surveillance. You know, this is a way of watching somebody or listening in on somebody to, to, to find out information about them. And this can create certain uh, individual harms as well as social harms. It, it can, if, if we are constantly watched, people tend to get uh, a bit reticent about how they might act they might not behave in a certain way. They might feel uneasy. Um, also, there's power that is conveyed to the watchers. The people who are putting people under surveillance and gathering this data have a lot of power because they, they, they can uh, have a lot of you know, facts about a particular person. Uh, and these facts might be unrelated to the thing that they were investigating. And but you might know, nevertheless be useful. So an example would be, and in the, in the book I, I talk about these fairly concretely. So I try to show some examples of the harms and, and talk about them in, in uh, sometimes I'll mention literature, sometimes I'll mention historical examples, uh, examples from other countries. Uh, and so I try to show like that these things are not just uh, a kind of uh, a dreamed up creation are created, but they're actual real problems that people face and that they've experienced and that they're well recognized in uh, not just in the United States, but also around the world, that, that these are things that, that, that people find to be harmful. And I think there's a lot of sociological and psychological and historical and, 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 uh, and even literary evidence to show that, that there is a recognition that these things really do create issues. Uh, you know, one example of how information can kind of be used in the surveillance context is um, the FBI, uh, uh, you know, during the civil rights era, thought that at one point they thought that Martin Luther King might be a communist. And this was based on a really faulty assumption, but that's what they thought. That was in the initial reason they decided to put him under surveillance. And so they record him and, and, and put him under this intensive surveillance for several years. Well, they find absolutely no evidence that he's a communist. In fact, it's just a spurious assumption and, and you know, that there was really no connection at all. But they did find evidence of uh, certain infidelity, uh, and they decided to use that to blackmail King. Uh, so the fact that you might discover, you know, that, that the people who are gathering this information might necessarily find what they are looking for, 
but they still might have information that they learn about a person that they can use to harm that person. And so that, that's this one way. Um, then the taxonomy goes on, and, and then there's also interrogation as another form of information. Wait, before you, before you go on, I wanted to say a couple things. One is I want to tell you how much I love the way you write because you don't, even though you're a law professor, you don't just write about a legal treatise. So those people who are thinking that they might, oh, well, he's a law professor. Do I really want to read Understanding Privacy? Yes, you do, because it's not just about laws and legal treatise. It is about how this is a societal issue that's really important to all of us. So I want to stress that, Dan, that I so appreciate the way you write. And also I want to say that when people think of surveillance, you know, you think of video cameras or you think of wiretapping like you were talking about with Dr. Martin Luther King. But just think about all the other stuff. How about radio frequent frequency identifiers that are in clothes, that are in food, that are in, you know, uh, are, they want to put it in our driver's license, passports, all those things. That's a way of surveillance or your GPS. You're carrying your, your phone. Your phone is surveillance. They can surveil you and other GPSs that you, that you carry with you. And just even Facebook, people can surveil you while you're on Facebook or MySpace, right, Dan? I mean, these are all different types of surveillance. Exactly. So I'm sorry, I just wanted to say that I want people to listen and think about reading this because it is not just for lawyers. All right, then you were going to get to interrogation. Um, well, I'll really be brief because, I mean, there, there are 16 subcategories right. so that, that, that will be there all, all night. And, and each one, I mean, I have like a page or two for each one in the book. So it's not very extensive, but I have like a little bit of a description of kind of what, what they involve. But I actually wanted to move on to do the, the second broad category because information okay. collection is one. Right. The next one is information processing. Oh, that's and, a scary and, and one. And the reason why these things are different, and actually there, there's many different kinds of information processing. So I have it broken down into like different problems with information processing. But the broad uh, category basically is this is information that's already been collected. And so um, what happens? Can, can your privacy be invaded if a company already has your information? Now, a lot of people might say, you know, a lot of courts and, and policymakers might say, well, if they already have your information, you know, your, how can your privacy be violated? After all, you know, it, you know they, they already have it. Um, and so they're using information that they have. But I contend that actually there's a lot of potential privacy harms even when you know a company has your information, so um, there yeah, they are... collect it for one purpose, you know, and then they use it for another. Exactly. So, so that's a that's a huge violation. If I give my information to someone, and then I trust that they're going to use it only for the purpose that you know maybe I, I signed up uh, for Marriott, right, and I want to get discounts, and that's what I thought I was going to get, but suddenly they're selling it to everybody else. And they're making assumptions about me that could ruin my reputation or that could uh, annoy me by sending me other things that I didn't think I was going to get. Exactly. That, that's a problem that, that I, a sub issue there that I call um, uh, secondary use. Right. Which is the idea that, you know, when, when someone gets information from you, they get it often for, for a particular purpose. And if they turn around and start using it for other things, um, that is a privacy violation. Um, th there's also um, you know, aggregation is another problem there where you know, a company might have information about you and, and, and a number of facts about you. And then when they put it all together, if they take it and they aggregate it up, it up and add it all into like a big profile of you, they can actually learn a lot more about you and your behavior by taking all these little pieces of data, which might seem innocuous. So it might be, okay, your name, your address, your, you know, what, what magazines you subscribe to, you know, what, what products do you buy in the supermarket. And, and each individual item might not be very telling, but if you take a lot of this data and you start adding it all up, you, you start to be able to, to get some uh, very um, detailed uh, uh, a picture of a person's personality, of their interests, and you can make a lot of assumptions about their behavior and, and, and uh, their uh, likely future interests. And it may uh, be wrong. It may, you know, when they're aggregating, they may make mistakes, which 
could be a problem. And then, you know, the whole thing could lead to identity theft if they're aggregating all this and then somebody uh, takes that aggregation and then use, steals your identity. So it gives a whole, like you said, a whole profile that then can be used. You know, we have unscrupulous employees and companies that take these profiles and then take your identity. So, you know, you're right. It can be used for a lot of harms. Yeah, and so this, is, this is one example of information processing, how the way a company uses information, the way they store it, the way they uh, uh, combine it, um, all has these effects on your privacy. Even and how they secure it. Collected it. Yeah, how they, you know, how they keep it secure, which is often not very secure, um, and therefore it, it could expose you to vulnerability and, and identity theft and fraud. And, and so all these things have problems. And then beyond that, the third broad category in the taxonomy is information dissemination. And these are instances where the, uh, an entity or another person is disclosing or spreading your data to others. Uh, and so these are privacy problems caused by um, the uh, spread of your data, the transfer of your data. An example might be, you know, we talked earlier about disclosure. disclosure. We also talked about breach of confidentiality. Exactly. And so these are two mm -hmm. forms of information dissemination. Uh, and and there, there, there are others, too. Um, so, so there's other ways in which companies can spread your data that can create certain harms. Right. And so I talk about those sets of, of problems as well. And you and put then, blackmail under that one, too. Why don't you talk a little bit about blackmail? Um, certainly. Blackmail is a really interesting uh, uh, issue, uh, and it's really caused a lot of people to uh, – try to figure out, you know, what it's all about. And, and I think, you know, our intuitions kind of uh, you know, understand blackmail, but if you really probe it, it becomes a, a very tricky issue. And the idea is this, that, you know, blackmail basically consists of that if, if I know a deep, dark secret of you, and then I decide to, uh, you know, threaten you with disclosing that secret unless you pay me, and so I sort of extort some kind of money from you, by threatening to disclose a secret. That's, ba that's blackmail. Right. Now, the, the, the odd thing about blackmail might be the, is the following. It might be perfectly legal for me to disclose that secret. And there's nothing sort of illegal about my disclosing the secret. So why does the law stop me from uh, asking you to pay me not to do something that I legally could do? You know, why isn't that just understood as a contract? Mm -hmm, I make mm -hmm. a contract. I know the secret. I'm allowed to disclose the secret. And so I'm making a contract with you. You pay me, and I won't do what I can ordinarily do. Well, what's and, interesting and, is many companies do that when they settle a case, right? They want a confidentiality agreement not to expose the secret, and, you, and they pay for that. <laughs> but it's yeah. not blackmail. <laughs> yeah, and that's not interesting. But, but a lot of people have said, well, well why is blackmail illegal? Right, right. Uh, and so I actually think there's a reason why it's illegal and a reason why we don't want it there. And that's because it, it it's really about power. And it basically gives the person who knows the secret is basically you know, exercising an undue amount of power over the, the other person. And it, it, it really is very similar to a, a kind of extortion. It, it, it's using this information as a threat to try to get someone to uh, uh, give up money and, 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 and whatever. And, and, it, and the person who has it um, exercises a, 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 a really an undue amount of power over the other person. And that's why the law restricts this kind of thing and doesn't see it as just an ordinary everyday, run-of-the-mill contract that basically sees it closer to a form of extortion. And really the difference between a kind of extortion and, you know, a legal, you know, uh, transaction is that extortion is about, uh, you know, undue power being exercised in, that, in a relationship. And so that's why I think blackmail is, is a problem, because it, it, it results in this uh, terrible power imbalance. Uh, between the person who knows the secret and the person whose you know, whole life could, could be ruined by the disclosure of the secret. Right. We're speaking with Daniel J. Solov, who is a professor of law at George Washington University of Law School. And he is the author of a wonderful book that I just finished reading called Understanding Privacy, 
Dan has been on our show before because we talked before about a couple of his other books, The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet, and The Digital Person, Technology and Privacy in the Information Age. All three of these books are fantastic. You'll really find that even though he's a legal scholar, he he writes in such a way that it's just fascinating and anyone can enjoy his books. So let's get to the next uh, section, which is, let's see, we're talking about invasion. Yes, that's the last uh, broad category in the taxonomy. That sort of rounds up the four major categories. And and uh, invasion is basically, unlike the, the first three, um, uh, information collection is, is where I'm gathering information about you. Information processing is where I've already got that information, but I'm using it and, and, and storing it and, and combining it. Information dissemination is where I have information about you, and then I'm disclosing it or, or revealing it to others. Um, invasion involves you know, ways in which um, someone might impinge on your life and it might not necessarily be through the gathering of information. So an example would be an intrusion uh, into your seclusion, for example. You know, someone like you know, peeps into your home um, or... Peeps uh, into your passport information. Like, remember what happened during the election time with uh, Clinton and um, Obama and and McCain, remember, somebody was who worked for the passport agency was peeping in and just looking at their passport information. Yeah, and there's a harm, I think, in in that kind of uh, you know a, a trespass into the home could be an invasion. Another right. thing that I find to be a, 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 an, an intrusion would be um, you know, things that kind of disrupt your solitude. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, spam or uh, telemarket unwanted telemarketing calls. I mean, these are things that you know. You're home. You're trying to enjoy, you know, a nice dinner or a conversation with a friend, and you know, someone is you know calling to kind of you know sell you something. Um, that is a intrusion into your life. It, it's just disrupting your. You know, solitude. And, right, and or sending you text the, messages. I mean, sending you uh, uh, advertising messages on your on your cell phone, right? <laughs> That's another one that would be a, a, yeah. an invasion. Absolutely. And I think that the, um, so the, 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 the that's one group. And the other type is um, what I call decisional interference, which is um, when the government starts uh, interfering in certain decisions that you might make about your private life. Um, you know about your health, about your uh, about your welfare, about you know intimacy their... in your life, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. and, and so that that that's sort of where you know where, where the state is sort of getting involved in certain kinds of decisions that you might make about uh, uh, about your body, about your health. That that uh, where you know we have a uh, a potential privacy problem there. Now, now with all of these with all of these four broad categories and the subcategories. The argument isn't that they're all sort of inherently bad and that we have to, um, you know, always protect against them all the time. The the purpose is to to identify them and to to recognize that they do cause certain problems. That doesn't mean that in every case that, you know, privacy wins out. But it means that we need to recognize that these are problems. We need to recognize that, that they can harm people. And we need to try the best to get the law to understand them and then to balance them against the other interests, because there might be other interests on the other side. So with disclosure, uh, the other interest in a disclosure is uh, on the other side is free speech. I might want to disclose you know, a secret about you, um, and uh, the interest on the other side is that you know, I have a fr- you know, protection of freedom of speech and putting information out uh, to the public. That's newsworthy. Exactly, and that's going to clash with your privacy. And so we have to make a balance. We have to we have to balance the the two. You know, I was thinking about that because they've had um, all of these radio shows on KFI here in Los Angeles has had a tremendous amount of, um, I think, defamatory statements about the woman who had the octuplets who already had six kids. You may have heard about it yes, on the East Coast, and they have these horrible things they've been saying about her and I keep saying she's not a public figure why are they doing this you know and then 
it's it's interesting because then my husband will say, well, look, at you know, she's taking welfare and she's taking funds. This is the public interest, you know, that they should know about doctors that are doing this in vitro, uh, you know, fertilization for someone who's on welfare. And why should she have all these kids, you know? And uh, so it was very interesting to balance it. But I thought, oh, my goodness. What a horrible invasion of privacy, what they've been talking about, this poor woman, whether or not I agree that that her doctor should have done this or whether she should have done this. It seems to me that um, it's just proliferating. They're talking about her all the time, and she's not a public figure. Yeah, I find it very troubling, and, and I think that, well, I don't necessarily agree with her personal choices. Right. I think it's very troubling if we start having rules where doctors can say, well, you know, no, you know, that's enough kids for you. I mean, who is the state and who is the doctor to tell people, you know, this is the right amount of children that, that someone can have? And I kind of think, yes, it might be a choice that we think is irresponsible, but, you know, uh, I kind of think this is something that, you know, society kind of should butt out of. And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, we, we do give people a, a large degree of, of, of privacy and leeway in, you know, how they want to structure their families. And, and, and not know, only we, that, I mean, they have been talking like crazy about her, about her past boyfriend, about her now. It has just gone to the point where it is um, way beyond the issue of whether she's getting welfare or not and whether we should provide funds for her if this is her choice. Do you know what I mean? It's way beyond that. Yeah, it's, and that's an issue. I mean, I do think that there's... Um, you know, I don't want to discount the the fact that you know she's on welfare and there are issues there. But I do think that you know we need to be careful about you know I think the issues you raise about you know disclosing information about uh, about her that that's not relevant to this. And the other thing is I do think that you know people who are calling on you know the doctor to somehow make a judgment that you know this is the right amount of children that someone should have or not have um, seems to be. Uh, something that you know, you know, do you really want what you're asking for? Because um, I think that a lot of times, um, what we'll see is people will make calls uh, for th- they'll see one instance that they don't like, and then they'll make calls for these policy changes, but they don't think about the fact that there are downstream consequences to making a policy change that might not, you know, be that good uh, in the future. And uh, so to some extent, when you make policy, you've got to think like you're playing chess. You can't just think of one move ahead. You've got to think of many moves ahead and what the the full implications are of doing something. And I often find you have a very reactionary uh, uh, media these days where people quickly just sound off and want quick uh, uh, policy changes to the immediate thing. But then when you change it, then... uh, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're not going to be happy with the next thing down the road. When the doctor starts telling a family, no, we don't want you, you can't have, you know, a four kids, right. um, then people get or up say we, Or we that. have to look at, we have to look at your finances before we'll say whether you can have four kids. <laughs> exactly. And then people would say how outrageous that is, you know, that that's, you know, that's none of the doctor's business to start, you know, asking about, you know, my, my personal life. And so I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of considerations here, and I think that they're they're often not being thought of. Dan, I I have another question. You know, we've heard so many people, and I won't name the CEOs, but we've had CEOs, and a lot of people will say, oh, you know what, privacy's dead, get over it, it's not there. We have technology, technology is out there, you have no way, you can't put everything back in the genie bottle, you know, that's it. So what do you say to that? I think it's silly, and I really think it's very um, exaggerated and, and, and ridiculous, quite honestly. I mean, you know, if, if that's the case, if they truly believe that, that there's no privacy left, well, then fine. I, I'd like them to please um, post a, a website where you have a, a webcam in your home right. and you record everything, including, you know, your, your sexual life and everything. I'd like you to put naked pictures of yourself online, post your diary. I'd like all your medical and financial records posted on this website. Right. And what are they going to say? No, but all those things we protect as privacy. So the claim that you have zero privacy is just false. You have a lot of privacy. And so I think that the, 
uh, and even know, so people who say that they that it's over, you don't. I mean, when you really get down to it, like you said, they're they're not going to uh, want to give up the kind of privacy that they have. Yeah, well, I think that the, the, this idea that there's sort of no privacy is just false. I mean, there are threats to privacy, and there's a lot of danger with regard to that. But I mean, there certainly is privacy. I mean, the cops just can't barge into your home. Um, people have homes. Um, there aren't you know, cameras in people's homes, um, you know, records are kept secure. It, it, you know, there's some law that, that requires uh, some uh, level of security in a lot of states with regard to records. Um, you know, your bank just can't disclose your financial information willy-nilly. Right. Um, your doctor has to keep your medical information confidential. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't problems, but to say that there's no privacy neglects the fact that there actually are a lot of protections and there still is a lot of privacy. Uh, so I think that there, there's a, there certainly are a lot of threats, but that doesn't mean that there is no privacy. Uh, I think there really is, and I think they're just uh, kind of overlooking that. And if they truly want to live in a transparent world, then you know we'll, we can build them their glass house and install the, the cameras, and they'll be uh, the subject of the next reality show. I was just going to say, put them on reality TV. You know, I, one of the things I found very interesting in your book, Understanding Privacy, Dan, and we're speaking with Dan Solov, who's a professor and an author, Dan, was um, when you talked about the evolution of privacy about, you know, and, and cultural privacy, it, it kind of got me thinking about when you were just talking a few minutes ago about intimacy, where, you know, in, you know, the Middle Ages, people shared the the one room, and everybody slept in one room, and there really wasn't any privacy for intimacy. And that has changed as we've had bigger houses with room dividers and doors that you can lock, and other. It, it's been an evolutionary um, existence that we have look at privacy differently, and and it's also culturally different in each of the different cultures, and even the culture from. The different generations, like my privacy of what I will put up on the Internet versus teenagers that are putting up different things in privacy. So how has privacy really evolved? Well, in many different ways. I think that you're referring to privacy of the home, the fact that I have a discussion in the book about the history of how things develop just to show, in fact, that you know, our attitudes toward privacy do change over time. Um, you know, one one thing, and this sort of goes back to the, the, the comment of the you have zero privacy. Well, you know, if you go back to the Middle Ages where, you know, people just did live in one big home and they'd have, you know, they'd share one room with their kids and extended family and even guests would, 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 would sleep in the same bed. You know, the Puritans would think nothing of sleeping in the same bed with a house guest. And these are the Puritans. Right. And they all be cuddled up in the bed. Uh, so... Um, now, we, we have uh, had some, some changes in the nature of privacy, that as homes got partitioned into rooms, we actually recognize that there, there is a kind of uh, uh, places for seclusion even in the home, um, which didn't exist before. But, but even then, we, we sort of always have, un- there's been a long understanding, a, a long time understanding of, of the, that the home is private. It's just that what it meant to be private has changed over time. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we've definitely thought that the home is, is, is private for, for centuries, but we might, the difference was that homes weren't necessarily understood as places of solitude, which they are now. They were understood at least private in the sense that the government just couldn't start barging in uh, to the home and do searches. So that, that the maxim, you know, uh, a person's home is their castle, um, that uh, arose uh, basically it, it, it's a castle as against the state, that there's a protection uh, that the state just can't barge into someone's home. But, but that didn't necessarily mean that the home is private in the way we think of it today, which is a basically like a refuge from the rest of society, uh, a place of solitude and where you really can have uh, alone time. And, 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 and I think that is, is, is what's, what's different uh, because you know, homes were not very, uh, not particularly good places of solitude for a large portion of history. And in different societies, there's been very different attitudes about privacy of the body, including very different norms about uh, interpersonal con- uh, contact and uh, about nudity. Um, you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, you know, people would publicly bathe together. 
uh, in the nude, and, and this wasn't seen as, as, as unusual. Um, today it is. So there definitely are uh, the, these changes that have happened uh, throughout history that have kind of led to our particular views on privacy today. And but especially in the generation. In yeah, I, I mean, I think even in the generational differences, when the people will go on the Internet now and put so much up on, on MySpace or Facebook or all these social networking, you know. Uh, but that might change. And I, I, I do wonder what will happen with, the, with their kids. Um, and, and some people say, well, that's a big shift, and as a result, they're, you know, going to set the stage for future generations just not caring what's online. But I wonder, I wonder as more of them get older and they have kids, will, will they either be, yes, I want my kids to post as much as possible online, or they're going to be actually more tuned to the issue and check what their kids are posting online and, and say to their kids, oh, my gosh, you know, I posted this, you know, silly uh, naked, drunken picture of myself online, and, and now I, I didn't get a job, so don't you do it. Right. <laughs> or are they going to be, well, great, you know, put up everything online, including all this, you know, embarrassing information. Um, I'll help you upload it. Um, <laughs> I don't know of many parents who would do that. My sense is that they might be very well attuned to those issues um, when their kids when When they experience up. the ramifications of it. Because this is, you know, all new, right? Exactly. Well, it could be the, you know, sort of what would, be, let's say, be the attitude toward, um, you know, drug use. You know, parents who might have used drugs in their youth, does that mean that they want their kids to do it? Well, maybe some do, but some might have the experience that they might be extra vigilant and not want their kids to do it. So I think just because this generation might be doing something doesn't mean that they're going to instill the same norms in their children. We're speaking with Daniel J. Solov, who is a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. He's been on our show before, and we're talking about his new book, Understanding Privacy. And you can go to the website, understanding-is it dash? Yes. Uh, Understanding-privacy.com. Dan, you know, there are people who say it's okay for people to hear them on the phone or it's, in, it's okay because they really have nothing to hide. Well, what do you say to that? Is that a good argument? Um, I don't think it's a good argument. Um, I think it's actually a, a really flawed argument. Um, and I think that the reason it's flawed is it, it views privacy in only one way. And this is one thing that I try to do in my book is show that privacy, in fact, is many different things. It's this taxonomy of different things. And so the nothing to hide argument assumes that privacy is the equivalent of hiding uh, dirty secrets a- about you. And, and so people, oh, if I don't have any dirty secret, then I don't have any need for privacy. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, your Social Security number um, could, in fact, lead to identity theft. Uh, you know, nothing to hide. It's not discreditable, but um, I think you probably want to protect it. Um, I think you want to protect your data against fraud and, and, and certain kinds of misuse and other things. So there could be ways in which your privacy can be invaded even without embarrassing information about you being disclosed. And I really don't think that many people are serious when they say they have nothing to hide. Um, it, 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 it might be that they have, uh, you know, they, they don't think they have anything that is evidence of a crime or anything like that, but still they might not necessarily want to be watched in a surveillance camera 24-7 um, or, or, or have you know, naked pictures of them uploaded on, online. Or find out how much you weigh. <laughs> or have the financial records. Or medical- right, so like all even- those things. Yeah, they're private. And I, and I think that the, the, I think the claim I have nothing to hide is the idea that there is no, like, you know, that they can't think of any particular kinds of, of harmful information, but, but again, that sort of understanding privacy only in one way, and privacy is many different things. And so I think that the, the limitation of that argument is it, it conceives of privacy um, way, way too narrowly and, and neglects the fact that privacy is many different things. You know, Dan, there's been surveys out, and it shows that people's behavior doesn't always match their stated preferences about privacy. 
So uh, can you explain the difference between some of their behavior and their stated beliefs? You know, do people really care about privacy? Sure. Well, I do think that, that it is true that, you know, that there are a lot of things that show that people will readily give away information for, you know, very little in return. Um, and some uh, opponents of privacy use this to say, you know, people really just don't care about privacy. But I don't think that's true. I think that there are a lot of reasons why um, people will give away the information. And I think so a lot of them deal with the fact that I think a lot of people are not fully informed of what the risks of giving that information are. So if you're asked for a piece of data, um, you might not really know how um, that's going to be used. And it's sort of like if you give the data to me, only I know how I'm going to use it and or how I might use it in the future. And if I don't tell you how I'm going to use it, it's hard for you to gauge what the risks are. Um, unless, So you have a really uh, a dramatic inequality of knowledge. The person giving away the data really doesn't know the full range of risks because they don't know what the uses are. Exactly. So they, they think they're giving it for one purpose and they have no idea that it might be used for another purpose. Exactly. And another problem is, too, that a lot of the times you might say someone asks for, um, okay, do you like, you know, uh, Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi? Or do you prefer, um, you know, uh, Kleenex or, you know, some other brand of, of, of tissues? And in each one you might say, okay, I'll reveal that. I mean, that's, that's not that important. And so you might reveal the one, you might reveal the other. And, but over time, if you reveal one little thing and one, another little thing and another little thing, if someone's carefully collecting all this data and putting it together, that's the problem of aggregation I talked about earlier. And so you start forming a, a, a greater portrait of someone. And that at each time that you're gathering the data, someone might think, oh, that's not that bad. But then if someone asked you, oh, well, the, here's your dossier and here's all the information we have about you, would you have disclosed all this to us? Someone might say, oh, my gosh, no, I wouldn't have, have done all that. Um, but the problem is when you ask people you know, at each individual instance, they might decide to give it away, but they might not necessarily realize the totality of what they've given away uh, until you really add it up. You know, it just reminded me when you said that of the uh, grandmother that you may remember the story that was actually a lawsuit later about Beverly Dennis, who was this grandma who had given information so she could get coupons for, um, you know, to get uh, discounts on her products that she likes to buy. And the person who was inputting this data was a rapist in in a prison. And he ended up writing her a letter about how he was going to use the the soap that she liked and where he was going to put it. And it was a total invasion of privacy, which is, you know, outrageous how it was used. But she would never have guessed that by asking for these discounts that she would end up with a rapist writing her. Right? Exactly. So. We don't have much time, but tell me if you can pretty succinctly, and I know it's hard because you have so much good stuff to say, but, you know, do we have any optimism? What's the future of privacy? Well, I think that's, um, I think it's really up to us, and I think that um, the future could be grim or it could be good. I do think that we do have, there is a lot of privacy left. I think that, you know, if you get past the sort of, you know, rather exaggerated claims we don't have any privacy. Um, I do think we have privacy. And I think that we can actually make a lot of headway in protecting privacy if we make the decision that we want to protect it and we do so intelligently. And it's a question of, you know, what the the courts and policymakers are going to do and how they're going to create these protections for privacy. Now, using it, I mean, there's an example of uh, the privacy of the mail. It used to be that, that letters were very insecure. When people would send them, they, they had very little expectation of privacy. And you didn't have, you know, Scott McNeely running around saying, you have zero privacy over your letters, get over it. Yeah. Right. Um, just do postcards now. Um, well, instead, you, you had uh, people um, claiming we want to do something to make, uh, we want privacy of letters. Um, even though we don't have it, 
let's find a way to make sure that letters are private. So that's Congress what we need act- to do. Yeah, that's what we need to do with this. And and now I'm I'm finding out that we have to go, sweetie. You are wonderful, but we're going to make sure that people are going to have. Um, your book, they can go to understanding-privacy.com and they can see all the wonderful blogging that you do at, uh, let's see, will you give that website? Concurringopinions.com. That's right, concurringopinions.com. Thank you, Dan Solove. You're wonderful and we'll have you back again. All right, well, thanks so much for having me. Okay, good night. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Thank you for joining us. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. And go to our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what you want to know about privacy. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.